the work that you folks have been doing with this podcast is absolutely phenomenal and I'm just so sorry it's taken us so long to get together. <laughs> Thanks, man. Oh, no, thank, thank you. you so much. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel and Tiso. This season's broad theme is... Reconfiguring Whiteness. Hello, everyone. We're really excited today to be joined by Stephen Ash. It is indeed, yeah. It is Stephen Ash. Not Ashe. Ash, anyone... Ash with an E, aye. Does anyone ever say Ashe? Uh, it only happened to me at a, um, an airport in Amsterdam, uh, the Amsterdam airport once, um, and I was told that I wouldn't get on a flight and ended up upgrading me to first class. Class traitor. Really? Oh, <laughs> okay. Um, no, What's it really? like up there, man? Uh, free wine and cheese, man. It was good. That's the future. It was good. Working class people like wine and cheese as well. <laughs> I really like wine and cheese. I hate them. You hate, you hate cheese? And wine. Yo, I know you don't like alcohol. Quite cold cheese if it's raw. It has to be melted. Oh, yeah. Do you know about white pizzas? No. <laughs> okay, so white pizzas, no tomatoes. Those are the only pizzas that tea so I don't eat. like tomatoes. So it's, right. like, it's like having cheese on toast, but right. in a pizza place. But it's nicer than cheese on toast. Right, guys, we digress. We need to talk about <laughs> racism at work and trade unions. Um, your report, Stephen, you've been doing some amazing work um, in oh, terms thanks. of writing about trade unionism, racism, and more broadly, like how we can fight these structures. been really inspired by your work, particularly this report that we're hopefully going to mm-hmm. talk a bit about in more detail about today. Um, but before we get into it, one of the things we like to do on the podcast mm-hmm. is to try and sort of break down concepts, mm-hmm. ideas of institutions, what they're supposed to do, what they were built for. So, in your own words, how would you describe a trade union? For me, at a very basic level, a trade union is an organisation that has been set up to represent a group of workers that work within a particular trade or a particular sector um, within the labour market. Mm. I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a, good, that's a good definition. So why is it that some people don't like trade unions? Wow. Um, I think... I think trade unions and kind of wider kind of public political media discourse are often framed as being disruptive, being troublemakers that are just basically getting in the way, kind of, you know, of the way of basically the way the economy works, yeah. um, essentially. And I think, yeah, just I think it's just kind of post and pre pre and post Thatcher. It's just been that view. They're seen as being a disruptive influence. I think they're seen as. Stopping people earning yeah. a living, right? Especially if you think about the, the tube strikers, right? Mm-hmm. Now, no one really knows the detail, but the first thing people talk about is, oh, they're stopping me getting to work. Mm-hmm. I wish they'd get back to work. Yeah. And they're just seen as problematic. Mm-hmm. Even though they they could be campaigning for workers' rights or better conditions for the workers or better pay, mm-hmm. that's really a concern. That's really what you hear from people in the mm-hmm. general media. Yeah, and it's just what I think it, uh, it taps into is just the the wider nature of kind of common sense, mm-hmm. um, common sense kind of discourses, and and it's that fact of like there's most people on a very kind of basic level consent to the kind of you know being wage labourers and the and the kind of capitalist mode of production and kind of conscious and quite unconscious ways, mm-hmm. and I think that the when the with a lack of knowledge, perhaps, of kind of trade unionism. They see trade unions as being something that disrupts their everyday life rather than being something that's there to protect workers and ensure workers' rights. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, supposed to protect workers and ensure workers' rights. It's quite reflective of the post-industrial stage we're at, right? Mm-hmm. So if you go to other parts of the world, 
if you like in India, trade unionism is mm-hmm. quite strong still, mm-hmm. and people still talk about. It, but in our kind of late stage, even though they still have a very a very important role to play, mm-hmm. the common sense approach is like these things. It's not the neoliberal way. Yeah, I just want to go to work and earn my money to protect my family. Yeah. This individualistic mm-hmm. way of thinking. Yeah, and one of the things, although we can be quite critical of the the race blindness of those studies, the affluent worker studies and the black-coated worker studies that were done in the 60s, one of the things that we did find was amongst the, the, the trade uh, union members that took part in various surveys or interviews, is people were, t- were joining trade unions just simply to, like, pre- for individual protection. There was a lack of co- kind of collective consciousness, mm-hmm. like a kind of worker consciousness among the people that took part in that research. And so, yeah, I th- and I think kind of fast-forwarding that to today, one of the things that I find quite worrying, particularly when speaking to young people, whether that's people that are just kind of coming to university, around about that kind of 17, 18, 19 years of age, and they're like, what's a trade union? Mm-hmm. Mm. For many young people, this is a concept or an idea and a political practice that's so far removed from their everyday lives. Mm-hmm. You know, like, for example, if, if I said to my younger cousin who's just started his very first job working in retail, you should join USDA, mm. the, the shop workers union, he'd be like, what? Mm. It'd just be so alien to me. It'd just be something that was. Even when I've been at work, from my own experiences, when they've come round at, in the canteen at lunchtime, mm-hmm. being that kind of at, the, at your cousin's age, and yeah. they're giving you like a, a yellow piece of paper, and I'm like, what is that? Mm-hmm. But no one, no one's there to explain to you yeah. what it is. Yeah. So that idea that this group of people are protecting you from your employer mm-hmm. who can act often sometimes in mm-hmm. unscrupulous ways, right? Yeah, yeah. So eventually, once I start working in the city, you can see how unscrupulous employers can be. Mm-hmm. And the irony is most people don't trust their employers mm-hmm. in a, on a larger scale, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Tiso. And I think one of the things as well that we find as well is that the depth of hostility and hostility employers have towards mm-hmm. trade unions and trade union reps and maybe it's something we can get on it when we mm-hmm. talk about the racism ruins life report mm-hmm. the number of people who wrote responses to open-ended questions saying for example that they wanted to go to like organize like a black history month or their their union had organized for them to use their union rep time to attend like some form of anti-racist work or equality and diversity work mm-hmm. and the pressure that the, the employer has been putting on people not to attend those things and the impact it has in terms of, like, those subtle kind of... Well, not so subtle, actually, <laughs> but those threats of, like, you're jeopardising your promotion doing this <laughs> sort of stuff and being identified as a, trou- a potential troublemaker. And these are the ways in which we see how, within the workplace, we see the, the various coercive ways <laughs> that, that, that white hegemony maintains itself. Can we just just roll back a sec, guys, and talk about... Because we, we do talk about it on the podcast, but quite flippantly, and it might be good to get into a bit of the detail of it. What did Thatcher do to the trade unions? Do, do you want to go? <laughs> <laughs> well, what didn't she do? What didn't she do to the trade unions? Yeah, exactly. Um, what, what didn't she do? She didn't She didn't weaken, uh, weaken them to the point where they disappeared altogether. Like, she fundamentally sought about breaking worker power in Britain. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely essential to, to her programme in order to free, totally in line with a free market economy. Let's basically unshackle employers, let's unshackle the economy of the influence and the, the power of workers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To let the market be the guiding hand, right? But so what, tell me about what 
Well, so, you have, you have, so for example, like for example, a good one, GCHQ, which which was the intelligence agency, they couldn't form a union. She stopped them forming unions, right? Okay. So certain people, certain groups, stopped forming unions. Other ones, like the miners, just mm-hmm. destroyed them. How? Destroyed, just closed down all the mines. Yeah, like Shut causing the closing down the industry, yeah, destroying and destroying entire communities mm-hmm. and their, their their ways of life, whether that be kind of kind of cultural and kind sorry of I'm not I'm not questioning Thatcher's evilness I'm yeah, just, yeah, I just yeah. want, to get some, I want to get some specifics I thought we were getting <laughs> Thatcher redemption no there, no not at all god we've been talking about that people sort of reimagining Thatcher yeah. as some sort of like Hero, heroine. Yeah. So some people, some people, she is, yeah. but I always say to kind of help with my head. The 1970s was like the era of when unions are really strong, right? Yeah. At the kind of peak of their power, mm-hmm. and so you, you have this what we call in historically like the the winter of, winter of discontent, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have this uh, I think it's Barbara Castle in 1979. There's a, a document called In Place of Strife, and you start to see a decline. In, it actually comes in with Reagan with this neoliberal agenda, basically. Just destroyed unions, and literally they closed the mines. So, what an example of destroying the union? She going the miners' strikes, man. Yeah, the miners' yeah. strike. That's the best one. The but, best one. But what's interesting about like things like the miners' strike is, it's the use of the police mm-hmm. to physically oh, yeah. quash yeah. the unions. Um, it's the 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 ways of quashing entire industries and the the working class cultures that are closely attached to the to those areas and industries. Destroying an entire way, of, essentially, life. Just an entire way of working class life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was something that was done um, using the state apparatus, using the police. It was mm-hmm. something done using legislation. It was something done um, politically. It was cultural. Mm-hmm. It was a whole range of kind of. So we go to like the meet the papers as well. Yeah. So that cultural, yeah. like, like you said, cultural, state violence, mm-hmm. and. But you don't understand until you see it, right? Until you watch the clips back of the of the police physically corralling people on mm-hmm. horseback. Now, obviously, we don't have we don't have kind of cameras going back to like the Peter Lou riots and things like. But it's the same tactics, exactly yeah. the same tactics, and that same level of state violence to quash a working class movement, man. A working seems like a working class way of life. Mm-hmm. That if you speak to some people who were there at that time, who still haven't got over it. And it's that classic way of. of Using the ways in which hegemony works, it's that use of coercion. Mm-hmm. If you cannot maintain power and domination through consent, consent when basically consent starts to weaken, yeah. there's that term coercion, like Stuart Hall writes about yeah, this, yeah. policing the crisis. The crisis. Yeah. It's brilliant. Um, and, and it's that shift towards increasingly and coercive political ideological... And that, that idea of coercion it works well. Like, so it's in people's heads now, so... These unions will jeopardise your power, so you want, you, I'll give you more power. Give less of the unions to power and give the government more power to do more stuff. Mm-hmm. And it, it's quite scary how they, how they kind of do that, man. And you see that more recently as well, like under the, the coalition government in recent years, um, the increasing tightening of legislation, mm-hmm. anti-trade union legislation, they make it more difficult to organise, uh, more difficult to, to strike, mm-hmm. essentially more difficult to disrupt... Like the, 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 the free way, movement of capital, the, right? The, the way the economy works. But so I wouldn't say so. You see the your report, right? Mm-hmm. How so? How does that kind of how do we segue that into kind of racism? So we have the unions, we have the kind of background and the kind of historical understanding of what mm-hmm. it is. But how have unions dealt with ethnic minorities, basically? From what you kind of been putting out from your report? Yeah. So so basically, um, in terms of how the unions have been treating. Um, ethnic and racial minorities, 
we were kind of talking earlier, and I was saying that one of the things that we do know is within unions there are there are people doing absolutely brilliant work. Yeah. Um, normally led by people who are involved in black workers committees uh, um, and, and various various unions. Essentially, the racialized outsider that Satnam talks about is the catalytic <laughs> agents of anti-racist work in trade unions. And the, in, in some places, there are instances of good white allies. Hmm. But what's worrying about the, 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 the TUC's Racism at Work survey was around half of the people that took the survey identified as white British. Mm-hmm. The majority of that half were trade unionists. Mm-hmm. And a considerable number of those people used the open-ended questions to oppose any form of equality and diversity work or anti-racist work um, to articulate some of the narratives around the white working class and the left behind. Um, and in some occasions, quite a few occasions, to articulate racism. You know, to articulate views that equality and diversity is white genocide, for example. <laughs> I, I was going to say that. I, I was going to say that they would probably see this as an attempt at either we're post-racial, mm-hmm. and so there's no racism, and by by doing these this anti-racist mm-hmm. work, you're favouring one group over the other. Yeah. So what about us, in inverted commas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, this is... We spoke about this a lot yesterday, mm-hmm. and this is this is it's troubling, and also as everyone, it's it's upsetting because we've been doing this, we've been doing this dance for a long time, mm-hmm. a long time, and these are effectively you're my ally. We 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 share a similar space. We probably go back to the same group of flats, mm-hmm. same same areas. Our kids probably go to the same schools, right? Mm-hmm. But we need to change this dance, man. We can't be doing this same thing. Like I am slightly more disadvantaged than you. Like, mm-hmm. That's a fact, right? Yeah. It's not something we can deny anymore, but we, we can we can overcome this. But first, we have to be honest with each other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that within so one of the things I've been doing, uh, working with various unions and various black workers committees, is basically going and speaking to groups of workers at various trade union events, um, kind of across the country, mostly in the kind of North England and in London. God, that's really important work. Um, and and one of the things that that's really kind of part of that <clears> is. Is basically trying to take on some of those narratives where basically people look at people um, with black and brown bodies and don't see they don't see a comrade, mm. they see another. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't see somebody that's working class. Mm-hmm. They see somebody that's a racialized other, um, and basically challenging those ideas around around the white working class and and trying to kind of can trying to address the notion that. The, the working class in this country has, from its very formation, been multiracial, multi-ethnic <laughs> from from the get-go, from <laughs> day from day, day one yeah, that the working yeah. class woke up in this <laughs> country, or, or sorry, was born in this country. It's been multiracial, multi-ethnic, <laughs> and I think that I think that you, you hit the nail on the head in a way. Like that's a fundamental challenge. How do we stop going round and round and round in these circles? And one of the things, like thinking about Satnam's book for example, you think about the ways in which those catalytic moments, how that ebb and flow <laughs> of how sort of kind of things things work. And I think, and uh, that, 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 that's a challenge. How do we address those what, things? One of the things that I'd say that I'm slightly concerned about, um, thinking about trade unionism and, and in particular thinking about academia, is people retreating away from trade unions that possibly need, it, need them the most. So if I think of, like, 
the very few black peers that you have within um, academia and how they feel about trade mm-hmm. unions. Obviously, there's a lot of black people that are involved in trade mm-hmm. unions, particularly in academia, in the academic setting. But some people feel ambivalent mm-hmm. and the, their voices aren't being heard. Um, and if they are heard, it's in a tokenistic way and it's not in a meaningful way, which mirrors wider society and wider structures. What mm-hmm. is it about trade unions that is different from the university and how I will be treated as a black woman? Do, yeah. do, do you see what I mean? And I, I'm yeah. not, I'm not, I don't want you to to, no. to put the put the wrongs right here, Stephen. But I'm just sort of voicing what I know that some people feel about um, trade unions in general, and that relates to the responses that you had from mm-hmm. the white participants, I guess. Yeah, um, and, I th- and I think what what you're saying there, Chantel, also echoes it echoes both in the data from the, the, the TUC survey, but then also in the writings of the of people like Nicola Rollock, Shirley mm-hmm. Tate, Sarah Ahmed, when you were speaking there, mm-hmm. Chantel, the first thing and like reading the data mm-hmm. and the trade union surveys, the first the first things that were coming into my head were Sarah Ahmed and mm-hmm. work on battle fatigue, the the brick wall yeah. and stuff like that. And I think that ambivalence mm-hmm. that ambivalence really comes from that just just that feeling that that voice that that only certain voices are heard, certain voices are silenced, mm. um, and that, like the institution, too often what the trade union tra- what trade unions are doing is that they're mirroring the institutions in the sense of their action is symbolic and tokenistic gestures, <coughs> and it's not actually trying to get to the to the crux of these issues and address them in any any meaningful full way. So, for example, so if that's your experience, why would you why would you go to trade union meetings? Yeah. Why would you why would you encourage uh, new colleagues and younger colleagues coming through, by the way, sign up to to join the union? Why would you do that if that's your own personal experience? And I think that's where it's born out of. And one of the things we were talking about earlier is, for example, we see at Goldsmiths and at various other universities, sort of kind of. Uh, grassroots-based trade unions being set up, mm-hmm. and part of that's coming from the frustrations of basically how either um, trade unions that work in and around the higher education sector either don't respond to the needs of those workers, or the ways in which they do respond is very hierarchical and bureaucratic, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So I think, in terms of addressing some of the problems, I think the, there needs to be a fundamental shift in the way that trade unions do things. They need to be more reactive in a progressive sense of listening to why people don't join, listening to why people are frustrated with the processes, listening to taking people seriously when they say that they're they're, they're encountering various forms of prejudice and discrimination from 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 employers, from colleagues. Yeah. I, I also think it's trade unions I think they're good at taking on certain issues right mm-hmm. other issues I think they find it hard to deal with because mm-hmm. the, the optics of it also mm-hmm. taking on an employer for racism or mm-hmm. sexism is difficult for them right mm-hmm. and so there's lawsuits there's mm-hmm. potentially a very very powerful company in the background mm-hmm. and I think trade unions this is why they don't really deal with these issues mm-hmm. and if they deal with them in that kind of colour blind or gender blind way like mm-hmm. they know they're happening mm-hmm. but it's these are difficult things to deal with right and difficult things to take on well that was one of the things to sort of looking at the, the listening to the voices in, in, in the survey it was people were more likely to be positive about their trade union when the trade union got involved to deal with an employer mm-hmm. okay but when 
when a trade union got involved to deal with instances between between workers where where the person on the receiving end of racism and the perpetrator were members of the same union, members of the same branch. This is where things start to oh God, start yeah. to become fraught, start to become oh. difficult. And and I think one of the things going around trade union branches around the country and speaking about these things is time and time again, what I see in trade unions is a lack of anti-racist political education, a lack of kind of structures and a lack of culture in terms of how we address these issues. So, like, I remember I was at a trade union event in Bristol early on in the year and I was kind of um, drawn in Barner Hess's different types of white identities mm-hmm. um, and basically asking the white people in the room, what sort of white identity do you fit in there? And Could you name some of these? Yeah, so like for example, is it a white supremacist supremacist identity? Is it a white abolitionist identity and stuff like that? And I must just basically just cite um, Katie Sheehan's Discover Society piece because that's where mm-hmm. I first become aware of Barner Hesse. So I've got to give credit to Katie there. Episode for, episode notes. We'll put it in. Episode notes. Then. <laughs> yeah. um, but essentially, ah, so things like, are you white critical? Um, are you the one I find quite interesting is, are you a white traitor? Really? Um, and the notion of white traitor, um, what Barner Hess is getting at, is, are you actively going to be kind of like what I was saying in those comments in relation to open democracy? Yeah. Is being called a race baiter, yeah, yeah, um, and a white traitor because basically you're highlighting white racism. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm a traitor to the race, apparently. I'll accept that um, badge of honour <laughs> and all that, but. Um, <laughs> Ah, so it was things like that and things like white saviour. Mm-hmm. And I think this is, again, like with a lot of the discussion so far is focused on the unions. And as I say, there's a lot to be critical of and we should also be mindful of the, the great work that people are doing. But one of the, the things that was really interesting about both the survey and this event in Bristol was introducing the concept of white saviour. Mm-hmm. About basically stepping in and taking control of a situation and imposing trade union procedures and, uh, and stuff on it. So, for example, dealing with a worker who's not a member of the union, basically saying, right, I'm going to take on your case and I'm going to fight the employer mm-hmm. and, and so on. And all of a sudden, this worker's getting exposed to, to like managerial meetings and committees and being asked to really, really personal and co- often quite traumatic experiences and <clears throat> what that white saviour's doing is fundamentally further disempowering that person, uh-huh. aren't they? You know, it's like, and for example, so at this Bristol event and I'd introduced the concept to the white saviour and at one particular table people were really, really critical of the presentation that I gave it's like anti-white and all that sort of stuff. And did they say anti-white or insinuate? I was anti-white? told. I was told by people who were at the table. It was like, what is it about picking on white folk? I'm leaving. And I'm leaving. <laughs> but but this but, but what it does is it, it highlights to a certain degree within certain trade unions where we are in terms of need of political education, <laughs> anti-racist education, <laughs> and I think. I think there's just so much work to be done. If, if somebody in 2019 does not understand what the concept of the white saviour is, no, you, perhaps not using that term, but what the, the act of the actions of a white saviour are and can't understand that is really, really problematic. It's a degree of introspection needed, mm-hmm. right? And I don't think when you're in the majority, you don't, you're not required to think like that. Mm-hmm. You're not required to think about yourself in mm-hmm. any meaningful way because why would you? Mm-hmm. And this... This is the, the situation we find ourselves in in 2019, mm-hmm. where issues where we thought we've dealt with, mm-hmm. we, we haven't. 
We, ha- we have it. And yeah. what's what's quite admirable is that you're going to the room as a white guy mm-hmm. speaking to other white people. And I know how uncomfortable white people feel talking about mm-hmm. race, especially to a white guy that's speaking the opposite of what they think. That, that's even more revealing for me. Like when I see yeah. it, it, the, sh- the shock or, or disbelief mm-hmm. sometimes I see in people's faces. I, I basically, I just kind of say quite early on <laughs> people, I just say, look, look, folks, it's time to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, mm-hmm. and like, ah, it's about being able to, trying to communicate the importance of being able to handle discussions around these issues mm-hmm. without indulging in forms of kind of white guilt and white tears mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and basically centering whiteness in any form of kind of, discussions around these things and I think that it's something that I wrestle with when I, when I get asked to go and speak to, to groups of workers is you, you wonder how many people are you getting through to? Are you actually getting through? <laughs> and if you're not getting through or you're further hardening that position it's hard to quantify but I meet a lot of people who are really well intentioned that want to learn more, <laughs> who lack the skills, education and con- uh, confidence to kind of do those things. But I think that that kind of would bring me back to the point um, that I've talked about before, and it's about what is the role of the white ally. Mm. And for me, I always return to Malcolm X and the role of the sincere white allies mm. to work in conjunction um, with the pe- with people who are on the receiving end of racism and to go and talk to white people. So, for example, when I go to trade union mm. events, for example, that's a, that's a multiracial audience, mm. I just say for the get-go, it's not my place to stand here and lecture you on what racism is, what it looks like, feels mm-hmm. like, and sounds like. I'm here as a white ally, mm-hmm. working in conjunction with the Black Workers Committee, mm-hmm. and basically I'm talking to white people, essentially to white people yeah. in, the, in the room. Why is this work important to you? Why do you do this work? I am interested particularly mm-hmm. in white criticals. Is that one of the white identities? or like yeah. What is it about it that speaks to you and sometimes when I ask people this question they mm-hmm. tell me about something to do with like the way they grew up or like mm-hmm. their lived experience or people around them like how mm-hmm. did you get to this point because it is it's brilliant to hear but I just sort of like to know people's journey and get into yeah, this yeah. moment where you actually understand the structures of yeah so I racism. think for me uh, it stems from growing up in the, the west of Scotland and the particular dynamic of anti-Irish racism um, and sectarianism in the Scottish context. It was something that happened in the, the neighbourhoods in which I, I lived in. I think it kind of stems for those experiences and I think it kind of stems for having... I think it stems for being being brought up in a family that that there was... There was both racism, but also a sense of anti-racism as well, mm. and kind of anti-colonialism, um, particularly r- related to the politics of Ireland. I can say, are you Celtic? I'm no, a Celtic. Pacific. No. Are you a Rangers? And this is something that I've wrestled with. <laughs> when I was a kid, I was actually yeah. a Rangers fan. Would you? Would you? I was wait, actually, wait. Is your family Celtic though? Um, a mix. Mix. Okay. And I was actually a Rangers fan, and. Um, simply because I thought Ali McCoist was the best footballer in the world because he just scored tons of goals yeah, yeah. and I wanted to be like <laughs> Ali McCoist. But I can remember, um, and I'm sure the person I'm about to name will remember, being in a sociology seminar as an undergraduate uh-huh. and, I, and I actually used a line in debate with another student. Uh-huh. <laughs> being a Rangers fan is antithetical to being a Marxist. <laughs> and and uh, that was in one of Santa and Birdie's, uh classes. But yeah, I think for me it just... The initial sort of 
move towards a kind of anti-racist consciousness just comes from from that sort of experiences in terms of the type of work that I do focusing specifically in that relationship mm. between race and class it's about it's the ways in which class and British sociology and beyond is consistently whitened it's the ways in which a lot of people in, in British sociology and across the social sciences more broadly will continue to talk and claim a notion of kind of white working class authenticity and to be quite frank, growing up in the west of Scotland, um, <laughs> their notions of authenticity and class were just not authentic to me. Kind of coming through those personal experiences and then meeting someone like, as an undergraduate student, meeting someone like Satnam Verde and mm-hmm. some of the other people that taught on race at Glasgow and just furthering that kind of education, I think that's where it, for me where it, where it starts and yeah. kind of where it kicks that's on. That's good answer. I was going to say to you, so going back to the report, like some of the recommendations, mm-hmm. one is about education, but also there's also a part about what government can do, right? Mm-hmm. So what do you think government can do? What was the report? What was the recommendation for the report? Yeah. Do you know what, T? So that's a really good question because what I've started writing recently, um, at the kind of behest of a friend, is I've started, I've started to write a short piece on um, writing recommendations and actually thinking mm-hmm. it through. And kind of going back to like um, that chapter on Gramsci mm-hmm. at the end of Policing the Crisis, okay. when Stuart Hall and his colleagues are talking about the war of position and the war of manoeuvre. Mm-hmm. The war of position being those sorts of things, that those quick gains that can be made to bolster support um, within a kind of counter-hegemonic sort of kind of framework. The war of manoeuvre being that manoeuvre that takes hold of power mm-hmm. to serve in the interests um, of a subordinate people and and stuff like that. And I think that from writing recommendations, I really, really struggle with this because there's part of me, particularly for government, where I'm thinking, should I write recommendations that I've got a likelihood of maybe being taken on or should I be writing recommendations that are calling for kind of fundamental sort of reform? And one of the things in the, the Racism Ruins Life report and the conclusion uh, is we focus specifically on critiquing go- the government responses um, from the Theresa May's race disparity audit through to the McGregor Smith review, and basically how the the government, if you actually look at the actual statement the government put out in response to the McGregor Smith review. What's the McGregor Smith review? So the Sorry. McGregor Smith, uh, so Baroness uh, McGregor Smith did this big review um, on the nature. It was kind of quite closely affiliated to the race disparity audit on the nature of racism and racial inequality in, in the labour market um, and employment. And basically McGregor Smith called for a whole series of recommendations and the government basically responded with the usual typical statement as, I will take it seriously, these are shocking, blah, blah, blah. There's a statement in it that says we will continue to work with business because business knows best how to, like, what they need to address these issues. And I'm sitting there thinking... Do you know what? Like we're we're we're, we're sixty years on for the race yeah. for the race relations amendment act, mm-hmm. which outlawed racial discrimination in employment. Businesses had long enough to get its act together, mm-hmm. and I think so. In a long-winded way, <laughs> the short answer to your question would have been: is we need government to abandon their their, their commitment to non-interventionist orthodoxy because mm-hmm. that's essentially what we've continued to see. When it comes to the private sector they, they, they refuse to intervene 
But there's also pub problems with what the government do in the public sector, and, this, and that literally comes down to the fact that the existing equalities, duties, and so on and so forth are just not enforced in any meaningful, meaningful sort of way. So I think what it needs is real, a real drastic unsettling of the orthodox ways of doing things that, that we can trace back to 1968 and earlier. I would literally agree with you. It, it, it needs to be an unsettling of neoliberal, of the neoliberal agenda, right? And to rethink that. Because what we're seeing is inequalities, right? And it's riddled with inequalities. But you know what? this idea of state intervention is so deeply set in government mm-hmm. mindset. So when you think of state intervention, even when we're in the, even in this current run-up to this current election, and Jeremy Corbyn spoke about nationalisation, mm-hmm. the newspapers, that's like a, a boogeyman. Well, by, the time yeah. it, by the time it comes out, sorry, the election yeah. will be... But Over. but that's like oh, that's horrific to people, right? Yeah. The idea of the state being involved mm-hmm. somehow somehow the state mismanages stuff. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of narrative that's being put forward. That business knows best. The state doesn't, right? But do you know what's mental about that, right? Like the Tory Party positions themselves, or the right in general, like and I'm including the Lib Dems in that, position themselves as like the parties of business and stuff, mm. and yet like they're the ones that mismanage so much mm-hmm. money. Like, I, honestly, I, I didn't sleep. And, guys, I'm really sorry, but this is recorded in October. Obviously, a lot of water has gone under the bridge since then, but it's still relevant. I honestly didn't sleep one night properly when I found out that Boris Johnson had spent £100 million on that what, get ready for Brexit it, campaign, of, yeah. 31st of October. That's more than any council gets. Yeah. Like, that, like... How is it our cultural mm-hmm. landscape means that that doesn't matter and it's the left and the trade unions mm-hmm. and, and public sector that are the ones that mismanage money? Mm-hmm. Like, honestly, that made me want to throw up and I couldn't sleep. Mm-hmm. How <laughs> do we change just, that? There's just a, Exactly, there's just a, such a long history mm. of, of, of those ideas. Um, we were talking about Thatcherism earlier. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of like, what Thatcher did was highlighting how social democracy basically busts the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you trace that through the arguments we heard um, when the financial crash happened and Gordon Brown and like Labour kind of got blamed um, specifically for that. And I think that is one of the things about what the Conservatives have been absolutely brilliant at is convincing the public, or large sections of the public, that they can be trusted the economy. the economy, you know, it's mental. Um, like even just people in your everyday life will be like, oh, I, I get, I like Labour policies, or I mm-hmm. like this about the Labour movement, but I just don't trust them with money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and so you trust Tories then? But yeah. the, the, but again, that's like the last time they was like, it's still the kind of, it's the misremembering of the seventies, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what people, that's be people's people that weren't even born then, right? Will say that to you. And the Tories are tough on law and order and all this kind of yeah. nonsense. Yeah. I hate them all. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, but I think that's right. I think that, but I think what we need to kind of fundamentally understand is we need to fundamentally understand how were how how were the Tories and the media able to construct that narrative mm-hmm. in the way that, that it gets pumped out and pumped out that basically so many people believe it to be mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. I think like, in terms of how do we change that is we need to un- fundamentally understand how they were able to achieve that. That's mm-hmm. got to be, for me anyway, a kind of starting point. That's a good idea. Yeah. It's good, like, because then we can, in a weird way, learn from you, you, that. You can or... work back. You can work back and you can... Un- like I said, these are all constructions, so you can work it. Mm-hmm. So if you work at how they, how they did it, then you can undo it. Hopefully. Or can we do something that counters it that's just as strong? 
Yeah, I think on that sort of thing, like I noticed Tom Mills on a few weeks ago. Yeah. He'd probably have a lot to say, I would imagine, <laughs> on basically how they're able to construct those narratives and how they become so the powerful and pervasive. Mm-hmm. But like I said, the, the most of, a lot of this social change in this country has been down to the working classes, right? Mm-hmm. And the working classes, like we said, have always been multi-ethnic, mm-hmm. gendered and uh, very diverse, right? But this, is a, this country has a long history of that. But, mm-hmm. but the history almost seems forgotten. Mm-hmm. And that's what's quite scary to me. Like, or that it's not even that it's forgotten; it's that it's reimagined through this imperialist, colonial, like mm-hmm. Britain's amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's yeah. it's reimagined as something that it actually wasn't. Yeah, yeah. I think Satnam mm-hmm. does talk a bit about this yeah. as well. Yeah, and I think this is one of the like kind of talk. Obviously, you've mentioned kind of Corbyn election coming up, and yeah. I think that one of the things we've seen a lot of in recent years is a is a, a kind of a really worrying reimagining of the the kind of post-war welfare <laughs> consensus, and I think that that's kind of um, it's remembered really uncritically, and it forgets the role that the role of kind of racism sort of within that. And I think that's one of the dangers um, that we hear in and around the kind of Corbyn campaign mm-hmm. is this: we hear these same ideas, these historical reference points getting regurgitated in really, really sort of nostalgic ways. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, like, that, that obliterates, like, the history of, for example, of um, the Indian Workers Association in the Midlands, um, to, to pick one example. These histories get get lost. Like, how many people, like, would know that the Indian Workers Association in the Midlands built one of the most powerful shop floor movements in the iron foundries industry? Mm-hmm. Like can, these kind of things get completely lost, and I think that we end up, uh, yeah, like you say, we end up kind of retreating into really kind of romanticised and nostalgic memories that that need to be challenged. It's really, I think it's really good, Stephen, that you just mentioned there, like that Labour and the left do that as well, because it is uncomfortable. Because you mm. almost get sort of like, as someone like myself, person like dreams of like socialism, like you mm. do romanticise that yourself. Like I think it's. Um, Julu like reminds mm-hmm. us yeah. without colonialism mm-hmm. without the extraction mm-hmm. from the global south there is no welfare state exactly. and it's such an uncomfortable reality because like mm-hmm. I would not be sat here without the welfare state and mm-hmm. it's something that I sort of like romanticise mm-hmm. in my lived experience like I wouldn't be here mm-hmm. but actually like the in quotations mm-hmm. laboured progress of black people people of colour is at the expense of mm-hmm. other people yeah in the global south like mm-hmm. and that is that tension like if, imagine like if we could have a movement or a party that actually just sort of spoke about that openly mm-hmm. like what is stopping us from from having those conversations yeah. like that's something that i have struggled with particularly like within academic settings and of just more broadly within mm-hmm. the media and politics is the people don't want to show vulnerability. People see vulnerability as weakness, and saying that maybe we got something wrong as mm-hmm. it's just you can't do that. It's yeah. unequivocal, unequivocally cannot do that. And I don't know. I there just feels like there's a space to do that now. And I just yeah, I don't I don't understand. I, I don't I don't I, even with like for example, we're talking about the kind of the kind of racism in the left. Mm-hmm. So like there's the kind of problematic tension within the Labour Party and it's it's based the trade unions right mm-hmm. and how the Labour Party at the moment is turning a blind eye to anti-Semitism but we know racism is on the left mm-hmm. but they will never openly admit that so when they're in discussions with the right with conservatives mm-hmm. the conservatives they'll talk they say to conservatives you're Islamophobic mm-hmm. they'll be taught you're anti-Semitic 
Mm-hmm. No, you're both fucked. You're yeah, bo- you're, you're both fucked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but and, and I think some of the things that we hear within the, the, the Labour movement echo some of the things that we're talking about in the trade union movement, <laughs> obviously. Mm-hmm. Sorry, the Labour Party and the trade union movement more broadly yeah. are obviously intimately connected. You know, it's like, how how often do we hear stories of the Labour Party being an anti-racist political party? And we <coughs> hear that time and time again. And I just think to myself, what about some of the legislation? Every time Labour's mm. been, been in power, some of the legislation that's been, been brought through, um, you know, um, yeah. and, and like we hear the same thing echoed within sections of the trade union movement. Trade union movement's got a proud history of confronting... Um, racism, standing up against racism, and you, you kind of think to yourself, "Well, mm-hmm. do you know what's a lot more checkered than that?" Mm-hmm. You know, um, that's that's a kind of rewriting of history. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think when I think with institutions, organisations, that because they have done mm-hmm. in some cases fought the good fight, yeah. and they use that as that's the badge, mm-hmm. and then but then for the stuff that that goes on on, on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Just forgot. We're well, not forgotten, but a blind eye. Yeah. We, we won't. We won't discuss that. Mm-hmm. So we know that goes on. My kind of thing is like, I think everyone's heard of where the problems are, but it's mm-hmm. where do we go from here, man? This yeah. this is the key thing. I think in it's anyone's like spoke to Ahmed stuff about how like institutional memory fades from view, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and just like how forms of reputational risk management, mm-hmm. we see that in an organisational level, are kind of constantly reproduced, where there's there's a lack of recognition of past injustice and past fundamentally critical errors. Yeah. And I think that until we start to kind of talk about that past, we won't envision like an alternative to the kind of neoliberal sort of kind of moment in crisis that we're in. We'll struggle to imagine political alternatives until there's a reckoning with those histories. <laughs> Do you, would you be able to talk to us a little bit, Stephen, about your findings within mm. the report and yeah. think some of the things that stood out for you that you think it would be good for our listeners to hear? So I think for me, kind of historical, looking at it with a historical lens, it was the ways in which colonialism, slavery and scientific racism continues to impact on people. Sorry, I'm just palming. It continues to impact on people's everyday working lives um, in such a routine basis. So it kind of take, uh, particularly how in reference to a whole range of different groups, notions of um, intellectual inferiority, um, notions of being unruly, savage, dirty, and stuff get constantly regurgitated in reference to a whole range of groups and we know that hist- historically how these ideals have shaped various kind of modes of racism um, and I think that was the thing that kind of stood out mm. and it kind of picked one example of how like the kind of the, the notion of intellectual inferiority is how much it was the sheer frequency of comments from women self-identifying as black mm. who had managed to find themselves in a position of a supervisory or managerial position and it was the extent to which whenever a black woman entered one of those roles they were immediately questioned on their competence mm-hmm. so it's almost like competence for example becomes um, white yeah it becomes white who is competent it's white who like the this kind of somatic norm is kind of normal poor I would say mm-hmm. of who is authority and who is um, intelligent and so on as um, as deemed to, to to kind of be white, and I think kind of going back to Normal's book Space Invaders, mm. like reading these t- 
testimonies. It was almost like it was like reading Normal's book in a lot of ways. Um, just how a racial contract mm. works to, to like the various forms of um, practices that work to maintain white hegemony. I think that was the, the kind of main finding that came out. Um, and just what it's like on an everyday level not to be white, not to be male, not to be able bodied. Mm-hmm. There was a and it was and I think it was those in, when looking at it for a kind of intersectional lens, how those multiple and overlapping kind of modalities of racism and other forms of oppression just overlapped. I think they were the main things that, that kinda of stood out. But one of the things that actually and I, I sort of kinda of, that really stood out for me was if I remember correctly, the statistic is one in ten people that had experienced racism in the last five years had experienced violence, violence yeah. at work. I think I think in your book you says that eleven percent yeah, eleven yeah. percent, yeah. Yeah. And it's just like that scale of violence, workplaces in this country are fundamentally unsafe. <laughs> you know? <laughs> They're fundamental but also it would, for me it was the depth of injury in terms of mental health that that I, I don't think kinda gets discussed and when going back to like speaking to like various audiences whether it be employers managers uh, workers trade unionists and so on and I always ask people with a show of hands how many times have you heard someone who's experienced racism at work say I just let it wash off me it's like water off a duck's back how many times have you heard that (laughs) and like quite a few hands will always go up and then I just start to read some of the quotations for that report Mm-hmm. about just how it's led like the, the depth of injury in terms of anxiety mm-hmm. suicidal feelings um, and it, so on it never leaves you man like I, my cousins are going through this now they're about your cousins age they're young just starting their first jobs yeah. and they're encountering racism for the first time in a corporate environment mm-hmm. so would that be feeling of can I touch you you're, mm-hmm. you're exotic so can I touch yeah. you from not Getting just hands in their hands. from touching their hair to like making them feel a bit threatened Mm-hmm. And where and they feel unsafe because no one's protecting them. Mm-hmm. So not even their own employer, their own boss will step up and say, "No, that's that's unfair." Yeah. But looking at the race, just to pick up on that about the point you were saying about here, mm-hmm. going back to the racism at work survey, the number mm-hmm. of uh, women self-identifying as black who were basically saying like how often stuff like that happens, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but how it, f- it fits into those forms of kind of colonial and uh, logics, mm-hmm. you know, of like how of how particular hairstyles are deemed to be unruly yeah. and how and objects of fascination to be touched, you know, um, and stuff and stuff like that. I think, and I think hearing you talk about, um, particularly, that it's standing out to you how difficult it is for black women in the workplace and how mm-hmm. they narrated that in the, um, in the survey, mm-hmm. it's just so upsetting, like, to hear, but it's not a surprise and it is something that you see consistently. Like, that's what... I mean, it's upsetting because it's just the same. Like, it, it is just the same. And what I find, I think, even more frustrating about this is how often... Like, I, and I'm a light-skinned black woman, how often I have to explain to people how hard it is. Mm-hmm. And how that's what's almost worse than mm-hmm. actually, well, for me, like me personally, mm-hmm. that's what's almost worse than the actual interaction within the workplace that is mm-hmm. racist. It's actually explaining it to people who are outside of that interaction and getting questions. Mm-hmm. One of the things of trying to get buy-in from trade unions, that's why it's so difficult for them. Racism is so ephemeral. It's it's hard to kind of place, and it's talk about lived experience, and 
if someone's willing to buy into your lived experience. So trade unions have a difficult job, right? Mm -hmm. But it's a job that needs to be taken up because, like I said, this needs to change, right? Because mm -hmm. the findings of the report shows that this is a problem mm -hmm. and it's 50 years on and it's still a problem. So how do we, one, how do I, how do I get my white allies, just, listen, just believe what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. this, this is real. Mm -hmm. This is real to me as, mm -hmm. as, this, as this studio, it's real, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a diff I don't know, because like I said, I speak to people all the time, and sometimes relating your lived experience to someone, they're like, T, that, that doesn't happen mm -hmm. anymore. And do you know what, T, so that's a really, I've been doing quite a lot of research in the last year on kind of various aspects of kind of institutional whiteness and racial inequality in higher <laughs> education. And uh, over the summer, I spent quite a bit of time with a group of students who have been working in a kind of programme where it's kind of intended to bring the student voice and the, the, the workings of higher education. And one of the things that's, one of the things trying to get particularly white managers um, and white people in authority to try and understand is when you think that you're including student voices and discussions, what are you doing when you drag um, when you when you drag students who have experienced racism in higher education in front of white majority white audiences mm. and make them relive those experiences time and time again? Mm -hmm. And like, I think what happens is there needs higher education and elsewhere there needs to be a fundamental conversation where white folk actually listen to what it is that they're doing what they think they're doing when they're doing either equality and diversity work or anti-racist work it's like because there is a fundamental lack of understanding of the harm that has been done mm. and what it what it does when you get people to to relive often quite kind of traumatic experiences time and time again. And we see that in the, the Racism um, Ruins Lives report. It's called Racism Ruins Lives because it takes, the title's taken from a quotation by one of the, the survey participants mm. who when asked, have you, they were asked like the tick box question, have you experienced racism at work? And the person's ticked yes. The next question says, um, you ticked yes to the previous question, can you tell us a little bit more about <laughs> your experience? And the person's just wrote, no, it's too painful. It's ruining lives. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I think that it's, it's that I think there is a fundamental misunderstanding about that that deep and lasting mm -hmm. trauma that these experiences cause. You know, and, and that's why I I sort of think personally, like this, these issues, they it, it transcends obviously the workplace and the union. Like it's within our peer groups, it's within our families, it's within the workplace. Mm -hmm. And it does come back to our theme of this season, that lack of introspection of rotten whiteness mm. is ruining lives mm. as well. So it's racism plus that lack of introspection. Mm -hmm. Like, it's why when I get asked to go and speak at stuff, I need to know who's in the audience, who am I on a panel with, mm -hmm. what are the questions I'm going to be asked. Like, I'm mm -hmm. so specific about what I'll say yes to now because of how violent those encounters are. Mm -hmm. Like, as in violence being the questioning mm -hmm. of how authentic the racism that yeah. I've experienced or something to do with my lived experience mm -hmm. is. I think the issue is systemic, right? It's looking at systemic racism and understanding how systemic racism is clothed in whiteness, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not individual white people per se. Some do hold these views, but it's the system that supports these views, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to find the ways of how to attack these views. And one of those mm -hmm. ways is about, like you said, a, a more of a, a white people's understanding mm -hmm. their position, position, like positionality in this all this, in, mm -hmm. in all this, right? But it's taking on the system and realizing, mm -hmm. for especially for working class, white working class people, mm -hmm. that the system's fucking you too. 
Like, they're using you to beat me, mm. or using me to beat you. Yeah. We need to punch up. It's the people, it's the small yeah. group of the elite that control these systems mm-hmm. that we need to kind of start thinking, yeah, they're, they're, they have the hegemonic control. Yeah. And I think, obviously, thinking back over the various things that we've talked about, mm-hmm. it's, it's about having a, a holistic understanding of how racism manifests itself. Mm. Um, and I think that, yeah, I think that there, there does need to be that understanding of like the structure and the institutional. So, for example, when I do trade union work and I ask people, like, when you hear the word racism, how, how do you define it? And it always comes back to, oh, it's about hatred, malice and intent, that yeah. individualised notion of, of what racism is. And then basically using that as to, what do I mean, what, what do I mean by structural racism? Yeah. What do I mean by institutional racism? Yeah. And I think, like, to, to kind of borrow a phrase for Alana Lenton, it's like, there's just so much basic, going back to the point we've made before, so much basic educational work to improve people's racial literacies that, that just so much needs to be done. You know, like, it's... I mean, how can it be acceptable that people think it's, like, for students in a lecture hall sitting behind them to, like, pull their hair? Mm. Do you know what I mean? How can how can that be acceptable? Um, how, how you know? And how can lecturers also like facilitate conversations where we're debating black students' humanity effectively? Like mm-hmm. that's what we're seeing more of people talking about as well. Mm-hmm. Lecturers saying the N word, like yeah. all this stuff. It just it. That's why like I go through stages of how exhausted I feel with it. But it is when I'm feeling really exhausted. It's like fucking hell. We have got so long to go. Like, mm-hmm. There's so much work yeah. to do. But even like. So I live in Scotland. But that's, that kind of comes back to that, what we were saying about Sir Ahmed's work and mm. kind of battle fatigue and stuff, and like we've talked about the kind of role mm. of the white ally working in conjunction. I think that's where that kind of, where, where people such as myself and the kind of pale and pasty coloured skin yeah. that I've got need to go and talk to people who, who look like me yeah. and, um, and basically say to them, like, it's a bit challenging in those white audiences and those white spaces and taking on a lot of that, that work. Um, I think that's one of the things that kind of needs to be done, but it needs to be done. The key point for me in that is it needs to be done in conjunction with the people who expe- who suffer Seriously. the deleterious impacts mm-hmm. of racism. So I lived in Scotland for a while, and I would come no here. Problem here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I'm on the east coast. I'm on the east coast. Um, but I'd go back and I'd be like, how many English people know about Scottish history? If I told them about sectarianism, they don't have a clue. If I tell them about the Orange Marches or yeah. King Beale, they don't know. And I'm thinking, like, this is your own country, right? And your level of knowledge is lacking. So when it comes to me, like, I'm so far, so far down the list. I'm thinking that level of education and time that needs to be put into these people is so great. Mm-hmm. That I'm thinking, who has the time and the resources to do this? Because that job seems so great. Your own history, you're not really interested in. Yeah. So <laughs> let alone the wider scope of empire, colonialism. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, th- that job... 9.45, that's as far as most people go. And I'm like, badly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, like, to, to give you one example, you were just saying about the Orange Order marches mm. and stuff like that. I'd just finished my PhD and I was part of a project that was being run by colleagues at the University of Stirling. Mm. And it became the report that was a public impact of public processions in Scotland. And it was essentially about the public impact of Irish Republican and Loyalist marches and parades in Scotland. Mm-hmm. And we interviewed the, 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 one of the kind of high-ranking police officials for part of that research. And, uh, and he basically was making this... It was making this comment about how, like, when you go in these processions... So I was basically relaying 
the fact that I've been doing participant observation, like standing watching these processions go past, and basically police officers been really close to to loyalist processions where anti-Irish Catholic racism is articulated, but also Scottish Defence League, the kind of offshoot of the English Defence League. They had marched through the Edinburgh Festival and were articulating racism and the police. The police view it as a public order issue. <laughs> like, let's just get them out of the, out the way, over and done with as quick. They never address racism on these things. So I said to the to during the kind of focus group discussion, I said, so this is what I've witnessed. How come the police officers are not doing anything about it? And I got this kind of lame response where this high-ranking police officer said to me, I've been doing this job, being in command of like these marches and processions for 30 years, and I don't understand what all the symbols and all the meanings and all that sort of stuff sounds. And I was like, and I just asked the question, so what have you been doing for 30 years? <laughs> Do you know what mad. I mean? Is that what he said to you? That was his honest response. It's in a wee short piece that I wrote, and one of the things the guy says is, he actually says, I don't have a Scooby. And I was just like... Very oh, Scottish, though. I don't have a Scooby. Well, yeah. Oh, that, that, that is very disappointing um, and mad. But we are going to have to end there. Um, Stephen, thank you so Steve, much. It's been, it's been amazing, mate. It's been good, mate. It's been, it's been amazing. brilliant, mate. Um, thank you so much for listening, guys. I think... This is yeah. This is our last episode of 2019. Is it? Is it? Yeah. So wow. happy New Year, guys. Yeah. Can I just can I just end by saying I think the work that you folks have been doing with this podcast is is absolutely phenomenal, and I'm just so sorry it's taken us so long to get together. <laughs> Thanks, man. Oh, no, thank, thank you so much. Thank you, man. On that note, thank you so much, um, listeners. If you are able to support us, please do join our Patreon. We totally understand if you cannot. We'll have another episode for you coming up now as well if you're a Patreon supporter. Thank you. You've been listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. Please like, rate and subscribe. You can also find more of us on Twitter and Instagram. 